Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. You're listening to 94 and More, where we explore how basketball can challenge us to reimagine our world in new and unexpected ways. I'm Luke Tadashi, the founder of Bristol Studio. Today, we have a very special episode. Our guest is none other than David Hollander, the steady voice of this very podcast, 94 and More. He is a dean at NYU and a professor of too many distinctions to name. But suffice it to say, The New York Times says David Hollander is explaining an unraveling world through basketball. In our conversation, we discuss Professor Hollander's new book, How Basketball Can Save the World. His book is made up of 13 principles, each rooted in the game itself. For example, balance of the individual and collective, human alchemy, no barrier to access, the court as a sanctuary, and many more principles we'll dive into shortly. While basketball may not immediately solve every issue of our day, Professor Hollander examines how the principles of the game can show us new ways of interacting, engaging, and being with one another, leaving us better equipped to work towards achieving collective goals. Without further ado, Professor Hollander, welcome to the show. Uh, wow, that was that was really a beautiful <laughs> way to describe and look in to all the things I'm trying to say. I, I'm almost like out now. I, I just, <laughs> You've done it. Uh, thank you. Um, and thank you for that really kind introduction. There's a quote that I'd like to read from your book that really hit home for me. And I'd love to get you to talk about it. So you say, basketball stays with me. It's what I return to. It's where I feel my whole self integrated, where I find balance where the world makes sense, where my relationship with other people gets right. It is my sanctuary, my truth. It is a lifetime pass to a universally shared space and consciousness, bonding me with all who know, have known, and will know what I know. And I know I'm not alone. What do you mean by that? (laughs) Um, it's interesting for you to seize on that because I know you play basketball. I know how much you love the game of basketball. And when I first started playing with this thesis of basketball as a philosophy, it was rooted in kind of unspoken truth, unspoken understanding, un articulated, wordless feeling that I have when I play. Because when I play, when I'm in that basketball space, when I'm playing the game of basketball, I do feel all those things. I do feel better. I do feel elevated. I do feel like I'm getting along with folks. My personality actually crystallizes. I'm quiet. When I play basketball, a lot of people would be surprised by that. And the amazing thing was that whenever I would talk that way about basketball with someone else who played basketball, 
it was just a complete understanding. It was like, yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. Yes, right, exactly. So it is a personal experience with the game, very elemental, that has made me think about why. Why do I feel that way? Why do so many other people feel that way? And is there anything important about <laughs> knowing that? And that's where it began. Yeah. And I and I can just say, as you mentioned, I, the game has meant so much to me in my life. And I can say I agree with all of those feelings. But I'm curious what it is about basketball. Like, why not baseball yeah. or soccer or you know what was it for you about basketball right yeah it's important that i always i always tell people this isn't because i believe basketball versus other sports i love all other sports i believe you can get great things from all different kinds of uh, athletic experiences or games um or other types of engagements hobbies basketball is this combination of people bodies in small space who must immediately connect with one another in a way that's constant uh and and necessary, which makes you start to think more about other people, or at least as much about other people as you are about yourself, if you're doing it right. And when that happens, and then you start to lose yourself in this game that has no positions, um, uh, is moving so fast, you start to gain an empathy you start to kind of, it's almost like uh, doing a religious exercise or, or yoga, I've compared it to. You're doing something physical that I believe is rearranging you in a neurophysiological way. It's training you to be in space with others, which is the experience of being a human being. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. It, it, I think... What I, one of the things I'm pulling out is this idea of movement as meditation, you know, um, but yes, but not as a not as a solo act or an individual experience. It's a collective one on the court. So maybe maybe talk about how basketball gets our relationships right with other people. Well, um, and maybe this segues into principles. Yeah. Or yeah. So. So the 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 so there's there's things about basketball that were intended, uh, and then things about basketball that the world has told us. Oh, that's the effect it has had on us. The intention of basketball in its very beginning was to somehow figure out a way. James Naismith, the inventor of basketball, was tasked with finding a way to have his students in a gym teacher's college play a game indoors in the winter without hurting each other. It was hard because most of the other field sports they did were about power 
and speed and rough physical contact. And so Naismith came up with this with with two ideas. First was the like overall overarching idea was like I need to create something that has never been created before. Therein are the seeds of of innovation, of progress, of of evolution. And his 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 enactment of an activity like no other was oh instead of creating a game like the other games where you have to run past run over your opponent the only way you can score in this game the only way you can progress is if you pass to another no more running with the ball first thing you must do to advance is to pass so you need someone else and you need them in a way that is not that is more skillful or is at a minimum is a balance of force and skill so i i quite simply when i i i i Naismith had 13 rules as an homage to those 13 rules i spent a lot of time thinking about what are the basic principles of basketball and the very first principle is cooperation is learning to be with other people in a way that makes you think about them and necessarily requires you to give the ball up to someone else in order to advance the process. Once you start to do that, once you start to think about others, you begin to think like in a way that, oh, maybe I need to create some kind of balance between me and what everyone else needs. This is a societal principle, a social concept. Um, basketball done right not only has a team that understands that balance, but desires that balance, that appreciates what everyone is bringing to the whole thing. And so you as an individual begin to internalize that responsibility and that balance not only gets you to success, but it's valued as success itself. Yeah. Is that a good start? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm really just soaking it all in. I think that that's, it's so, I, I think what jumps out to me is the title, How Basketball Can Save the World, initially feels like this really, really ambitious, almost uh, a reach or something. But when you talk about it in that way, I think it it kind of comes into focus because it, it, it is like so many of the problems of our world today aren't necessarily just the problems, but it's how we relate to one another in our attempt to solve those problems. And basketball provides this framework for doing that. It really does, you know, and I I I have these 13 principles and sometimes I lay them out on a board, a whiteboard or maybe it would be helpful to just run through them real quickly. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Uh you know and, and and as I run through them I'll say this. Um because I know a lot of folks who listen to this podcast like basketball, and 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 probably this is why it resonates. And you say, "Well, how basketball saved the world is a pretty bold thing." Uh, 
I say, as you listen to these 13 principles, don't think about basketball. If, this, if these 13 principles were just like, hey, here's a way forward. This is my political party. This is my position paper. This is my policy. This is my political platform. Would you like it? Would it work? These are my 13 principles. The first principle is cooperation. We talked about it. Uh, uh, it it's, it's the basic starting point of the game of basketball. And it's the basic starting point, like you just said, of human relationships. You're either going to wake up in the morning and think about yourself as a cooperative force or you're not. It goes nowhere if you are not. And once you are, you begin to try to think about society as, well, a society where, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, we are here with others. And because we are here with others, we must begin to figure out a way to do this together and balance between the individual and collective, that's the second principle, is important. And once you start to think seriously and devote energy to trying to find the right balance between the individual and collective, you start to look at different people and what they are and what they are not, what their talents are and what they are, what they're abled and what they're differently abled. And you say, this is a world that needs a balance. I call it a balance of force and skill because that's what basketball asks for. It's not about tackling. It's not about speed. Most games require you to either go over someone or, or through someone or pass someone by speed or power. The goal is a line. In football and soccer, it's a, a plane. In baseball, it's the base. Um, basketball, the goal is elevated, which <laughs> Not only requires a certain like attitude of 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 elevation and looking up, but it, it, in its beginning, it, it it prizes control. It prizes some type of balance between finesse and power. Um, and as you appreciate those two balances, you see the game is positionless. There's no other sport like that where everybody has every right to do everything with the ball, the, the most valuable thing. Everyone can score. Everybody can play any position. It's simply not true of any other sport. And positionlessness, I believe, is a, uh, uh, it's the future of work. It's the future of the way people learn. It's the future of a, a, a rapidly changing society and a person in it. And if you come, to the space with others with a positionless consciousness something the fifth principle human alchemy can happen you begin to see that you can change with the world and change the world where it needs to be changed meaning you become whatever you need to become as the world is becoming what it becomes gandhi said you need to be the change you want to see basketball is not about team chemistry to me, it's about team alchemy, this idea of you become something different than you were, not like, oh, this is how we fit together. You actually transform to something superior, which is the only way we get from today to tomorrow. 
when you begin with that kind of a game being played, when you are trained to be that kind of a being, well, you can be a really broad social impact force. The sixth principle I call make it global. The game was meant to be global from the beginning. It wasn't just the dream team in 1992. The game was, was sent to five continents, uh, almost at its inception. Um, as soon as he could send boats of people to China, Brazil, France, Australia, he did it because that's what he wanted to do. This game was for everybody. It always was. Um, in the first three weeks, some women approached him as they were watching his first group of men who learned the game to play pickup. And they were like, yo, could we do this? And without hesitation, he said, yes. Gender inclusive is the seventh principle. He, the eighth principle is no barrier to access. He always wanted the game to be easy to play and to be played almost anywhere. That's why he created a small space, a space that you didn't need much. Uh, you, you, you could play it in urban spaces, indoors. Um, you didn't need a lot of money. No barrier to access. Well, how often is that true for how many people in how many societies? It's key for us going forward. And, and, and corollary to that is principle nine. The game was always for the outsider, the other, the masses. Um, I apply this to immigration, but I'm applying it to this idea that we got to stop othering. We have to stop seeing people as not me, us versus them. <laughs> the sooner we get to all one thing, that this, these, these boundaries, these nation states, this is artificial. I'm not rooting for anarchy. I'm rooting for a different idea of who we are as people on earth. Um, the game is urban and rural. Zooming in, as you say, one of the great divisions these days in almost every country is folks who live in the city, folks who live in the country. Maybe it has always been thus. Where do we begin to find common ground, literally and philosophically? Basketball seems to be a thing that is embraced with great love and history in both urban and rural. Geez, that's interesting. Might we want to look at that? And just as a concept, might we want to find more things that we have in common? Um, the last three principles, antidote to isolation and loneliness, these are acute 21st century issues. And we need to find spaces that are easy to access, that uh, allow us to connect to other people. I've had Dr. Bessel van der Kolk in my class, who's considered the, 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 the transcendent voice on treating trauma, who believes that there are certain rhythmic group activities in the world that help us heal, that help people who can't see the world as anything but a threat begin to see other people as their teammates. He believes singing, dancing, basketball is one of them. Um, The 11th, the 12th principle is sanctuary, which for me is just a synonym for play. In other words, we're living in a society that simply does not value spaces where we can be free and detached 
un, un, unmeasured, unwatched, unsurveilled, un, unanalyzed, undata, like categorized. We've gone too far. And, and we need to start to, as a society, if we want to save the world, value spaces where we can still be human, where we can still enjoy the full range of human vice and virtue, grace under pressure, victory, cowardice, teamwork, all those things, without having them belong to some commodification or commercialization or analyzation um, or algorithmic feedback, which will free us. The the final principle is transcendence. Just as as a kind of, you know, uh, uh, figurative look at the game, the way you score is to elevate, is to jump, is to leave the ground, is to pretend like there are no earthly constraints, is to believe that you can go higher, stay up longer, defy gravity. That's why we love it. That's why Michael Jordan (laughs) is so exciting to all of us. Because the idea that we can be much more than we are right now is the only way we get past all the kinds of problems that seem to be repeating. That's transcendence. I'm sorry for this for that long kind no. of one through 13, but those are the principles that I believe come from basketball, are the philosophy of basketball, and are how basketball can save the world. No, it's great. And I'm, I think it's really helpful that you shared them so that people have them as context as we go through the rest of this conversation. But a bunch of things jumped out at me from what you said. And I guess to name a few, the last thing, because you just mentioned it is transcendence. And I think about what the, what the Pope recently said about basketball is basketball is a sport that lifts us up to the heavens. And he specifically distinguished it from other sports because of this concept of the elevated goal. And I think to what you're speaking of, it makes us reach for more. It makes us, you know, on a, on a symbolic level, want to be better, want to strive for something greater. And then on a practical level, it does show us how to be with other people at the same time so that we can reach that goal. So I don't know that that was the last thing you said. So that was what I'm, what I'm jumping off from, but I have, yeah. yeah, well, it's, it's important, you know, it's, it's, uh, whatever ism people, dis, you know, prescribe to whatever religion they, uh, go for whatever, you know, the question at the end of the day to me is what's the point, you know, toward what end, what's the idea here? And my argument is that it seems like we've been doing similar things from, you know, in similar ways from similar types of leaders leading us to progressive, similar conflicts and confusions. And well, where we are today, uh, I think speaks for itself in, in the multitude of, of challenges. That's an understatement, uh, you know, that, that frightened a lot of us. 
Yeah. And that's actually a great, I'm really glad you said that because I think it's important to root basketball in the context of its time. And I think that's something I'd love for you to talk a little bit about because even myself, somebody who I consider myself a huge basketball appreciator, fan, admirer, and I didn't really understand James Naismith's story. I didn't really understand the cultural and social you know, time in which he came up with this concept of basketball. And I think that it's important for people to know that because it changes the way we think about the game and, and understanding its origins, you know, shows us really the intentions of, of the sport. Yeah. And look, I'm, uh, I didn't know either, uh, (laughs) until I first started really researching this and digging in. And I, uh, and what I'll never say is that, oh, James Naismith is a, a perfect person or a saint. That's never the, uh, the claim, the claim is, is that he came up with a near perfect ideal to respond uh, to a time he was living in. And I do believe that it has a lot to do with who he was and his lived experience. James Naismith, first of all, was an immigrant. Yes, he was from Canada, so he was an Anglo uh, living amongst American Anglos. Uh, but his parents were from Scotland. He was from Canada. So he may have had a sense of not being from the place he was. Not only that, but he was abandoned. Not abandoned. His both He lost both his parents at a very young age. He was orphaned. That's traumatic. Um. He lived with his uncle and his aunt in 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 uh, outside of Ontario, in Ontario, but that could not have been an easy feeling uh, to carry in your life. It was uh, a feeling of displacement, a feeling of 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 where do I fit in? How am, how do I lock with others? Um, he tried to figure it out through physical activity. He liked rough kind of games and and athletics but he also went to divinity school because he believed that there was kind of some spiritual calling that was really important he did not go on to be a minister he did not go on to take a position in the clergy in fact instead he earnestly said i want to find a better way to serve God, whatever his conception of God was. I believe that there's a better way to reconcile the, the, the roughness of athletics, the body, with the spirit. So he ends up at the YMCA, which is engaging in this thing called muscular Christianity, which believes in the unity of the mind, body, and spirit. And his boss says, yo, Naismith, come up with this new game. And Naismith goes well beyond and creates a game unlike any other. But he creates it in a time when the world is in this like tumult, 
socially, politically, economically. In the United States, where he is, uh, wealth inequality is at levels it was never seen before because there were all these kind of tech entrepreneurs creating all kinds of new inventions and, and mechanisms to... Well, they said it would make create a better world, but really it just consolidated their wealth and power. Monopoly, antitrust were the results of, of, of that time. Also, the United States was experiencing the greatest influx of new Americans from China, from Southern Europe, from Eastern Europe. And there was great resentment in the country toward those groups. And America was in Jim Crow, coming out of the Civil War, its bloodiest time, its conquest of indigenous Americans. I mean, there was all this conflict and, and, and rancor, not to mention the vibration coming from the rest of the world. Um, uh, you know, China had just gotten through the Boxer Rebellion, which is essentially a civil war. Um, uh, Russia had 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 ravaged and pillaged across Tsarist Russia across this country. Um, Europe was beginning to distrust each other, and we were hurtling toward f- our first global weaponized, mechanized, you know, violent conflict uh, that would be all-consuming. This is where Naismith stood, and this was the thing that he created, which I believe in hindsight, as the world has torn itself apart and reinvented itself, this thing has only progressed in relevance, influence, ubiquity, over the last 130 years. Yeah. And I, and you know, I I I'm not um extremely familiar with how other sports came to be. I know it loosely, but I do think that basketball is unique in that sense in its founding and that you know, yes, you know, everybody and everything is is a product of its time to some degree, but I think that basketball is unique in the sense that the game you really can draw clear parallels to how this game was a response to the issues of the day in a way that i don't think with other sports you quite can he naismith intended this game to relieve folks from the cramped urban spaces that had begun to dominate uh people's existence for the first time um he expressed his desire for this to be a game that made people better people yeah and i think too obviously the 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 stage you just set from which naismith created the game sounds eerily familiar to a world we know today um but well that's why you know you see you see the the show the gilded age you see like it's all coming back everybody's it was that's and i should have mentioned that it's called the gilded age a gilded age which was glittering on the outside that was coined by mark twain glittering on the outside but false underneath corrupt underneath um it looks a lot like it, the world we're in today yeah and i think too it's worth mentioning that what like you say you know naismith is not 
maybe a perfect person, but nobody is. That being said, I think there, and I don't know the quote off the top of my head, but I remember in reading your book that somebody at some point says something to him along the lines of like, you know, basketball, this was maybe 40 years later. It was like basketball had become this success story and had become a sport that was on the rise. And somebody said, are, are you so angry that you don't see a dollar from this sport? Like, oh, this is, and do you want to, you want to talk about what he says? Or? Yeah, right. He's, that's, it's, uh, it's really important because he said, people don't understand. Uh, I could, I forget the exact quote that has been attributed to him. He basically said, I can get no greater enjoyment from seeing a hoop in any out of the way place and people just playing the game. He received no royalties on this. He struggled financially most of his life because he wasn't thinking that way. He actually thought he was creating something socially important, a, a gift that he gave to the world. Um, <laughs> he wasn't financially motivated. He wasn't thinking, oh, I'll build this and then I hope someone buys me out. That wasn't the, the strategy at all. Yeah, it seemed like throughout his life, he always wanted to place himself in the position where he could be most of service. And I think that that really becomes true when, or is true when you hear something like that. Like, you know, I, I think the other thing I remember him him saying was, uh, was, uh, yeah, like nothing brings him more joy and satisfaction than just seeing the world enjoy something that he created. Like that is, that's his royalty rate. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and he, he really meant it. Like he never, uh, I, I don't think he was unhappy when the sport went to the Olympics or unhappy when, you know, uh, professional leagues kind of were were forming and the game became more more popular but you know famously when he went to Kansas uh after his time at Springfield College of Massachusetts he recruited a guy named Fog Allen who was kind of a a, a basketball entrepreneur around uh, the state of Kansas he recruited Fog Allen to play for him and when Fog Allen got an offer to go coach at Baldwin College in Kansas, Naismith famously said to Allen, coach, you don't coach basketball, you play it. In other words, he meant this to be a thing that people enjoyed. Uh, it, it's for the masses. It wasn't to be this elitist, um, uh, you know, only the most talented AAU you know, uh, uh, you know, special basketball camps only. That was never the idea for this thing from its inventor. Yeah, and I think today, it's basketball has become so structured and so commoditized, even from an early age, that we almost are conditioned to think of it. I don't want to say cynically, but we're conditioned to think of it not in the pure form that it was intended to be experienced. And I think even just like what you just said about, you know, it's not a sport that's meant to be coached. It's meant to be played is so true. It's, it's kind of saying nobody owns it. There's no right or wrong way to play it. You shouldn't right. be told the way you're doing it is right or wrong, which from a young age, you know, we're overcoached We're you know, we're overtaught. We're told this is right and that's wrong. 
Um, and I think what he's saying kind of is this is improv. This is a dance. This is this is jazz. This is this is your place to fully express and realize who you are. And what a what a brilliant insight into what the doing of a sport can teach you. That improv, that kind of what 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 became known from one of his great disciples, John McClendon, as the fast break, which was the solving of a problem that you've never seen before, which that that's what happens on a fast break. You're just, you know, you and the others uh, in a, there's either one to stop you or two to stop you, or it's all changing. It's all happening so fast. This spontaneous, collaborative solving of new facts and circumstances as they develop on the ground. Um, you're teaching personal responsibility. You're teaching with other entrepreneur- people. With other people, that that's 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 the roots. That's the training. That's the physical, like you know, <laughs> Shaolin training yeah. for for entrepreneurship, for creativity, for for ownership, for for for. I got this. This is my job. Also, self responsibility. Everything that we like, you know, HR programs are trying to teach people. That's what you learn on the fast break. <laughs> Just give people a basketball and let them let them figure it out. <laughs> I'm telling you. It's really, and that's what they mean by coachless. There's no call time out in the fast break. There's no like, okay, let's set this up. I'm going to tell you what to do. It's the, it is, this is life. This is how we go. There's no, I can't slow down technology. I can't slow down political change. Um, what I have to do is be in it and solve it. And what's interesting too is I think the greatest coaches know that. Like the greatest coaches approach you from a position of humility. It's not from a place of dominance, right? Um, and it's like, yes, you have to respect me, but I'm also not on the floor in real time figuring this out. So my job is to kind of put you in positions where you can figure that out yourself. Uh, but I'm here to like to to help guide that process, and I think about how the best coaches, you know, like like a Phil Jackson or are known to not call timeouts in the chaos of things, or another team makes a run. It's there is this humility of like let you know let's settle into it, let my guys figure it out, um, and play the way the sport is meant to be played. Um, but but one thing I want want to talk about that you brought up is you brought up John McClendon and the fast break and you brought up fog allen and i didn't know this story but i think that it's fascinating and i think that so early on and i'll just set the stage i want you to talk about it but as there are as as there is probably with most inventions there was a struggle early on for what this thing is what is the heart and soul of basketball and Naismith was very, the inventor Naismith was very much under the impression and the feeling that basketball is, is coachless, you know, it's free. And McClendon was one of his disciples, and so was Allen. But they disagreed on what the heart and soul of the sport is. And I 
I, I don't want to say anymore. I want you to talk about it. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I find it to be a uh, one of the most instructive um, Naismith history moments. Uh, that again, I was so delighted to learn about. Uh, delighted just because of the the unbelievable story, which is from Naismith sprung kind of these two uh, disciples, one more disciple than other. Fog Allen was with Naismith in Kansas. That's the name of the Kansas gym, by the way, the Fog Allen Center, because he's one of the winningest coaches of all time. And Allen was recruited by Naismith to come to Kansas, to come play basketball. He seemed like a big basketball enthusiast. And then when he was recruited away from Naismith to go coach, to go run a program, Naismith laughed and said, what are you talking about? It's not a game to be coached, it's a game to be played. And Alan, who is really the, the, a certain line of a certain kind of coach that has followed since then, is about that kind of control setup, uh, very, very specific execution of specific plays and specific physical activity as much as possible on the court. Right around the time Allen was kind of like taking over and really becoming the uh, the the accepted leadership of the basketball cognoscenti, Naismith, kicking back in his office, meets a new student, the first African-American student in the phys ed program at University of Kansas, John McClendon, who says, my father says you should be the one that teaches me. And Naismith, with a glint in his eye, says, well, I guess fathers are always right. (laughs) And they start hanging out. And they go to the park. And they watch, like, just kids playing pickup. And Naismith says to McClendon, you see that? What do you see there? McClendon says, well, I just see them, like, when they have the ball, they go try and score. When they don't have the ball, they try and, like, attack the other team from stop scoring. Naismith's like, exactly. That's the game. That's how you play. There's really nothing more to it. That's what I meant. And McClendon was like, oh, I'm going to coach my teams that way. And McClendon, who's African-American, got his first job in, in historically black colleges and universities, began teaching his teams to be relentlessly pressing on defense and relentlessly attacking on offense, the fast break. It wasn't chaos. It was a vision of the way you move on the court and respond to the movements in opposition to your movements. It's like teaching dancing or 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 any other con- making love. Right? It's any other kind of human activity where you see something coming at you and and you move with others and well you know fast forward the fast break the fluid style of basketball which has never been disentangled especially in north america from issues of race has become the accepted style of play positionless basketball has become the the, the highest form of understood highest form of basketball 
Um, the ability for any kind of player to do any kind of thing um, in any kind of circumstance, the point forward, the big guy who can shoot from the outside, um, this is Naismith's game. And as you said, there's no right or wrong way to play it. There's, there's, there's only the game. That's it. In that space. Um, that's why I, I think if someone says, well, what's, you know, what, what, what do you think Naismith really meant? Point to a, a game, a league, uh, an organization. I would take them to a park and have them watch pickup. Yeah. And we'll get into pickup basketball shortly. I, there's so much there to unpack. I think, though, one thing that that just really, I don't know, struck me was, and I and I not to make it entirely about race, but we all are a product of the time that we're living in. And Fog Allen was this white guy growing up in the South, and so in this Jim Crow, you know, period of our country. And I just thought it was so interesting that, like, you know, how could he not be affected by? you know, what was happening around him and, and uh, the sort of caste system that he grew up in and seeing himself at the top of that. And then going on to coach and kind of see his role as like, I'm this puppet master almost that like controls these pieces on the floor. And then McClendon, this, this black guy, uh, you know, totally different background, totally different upbringing, sees the game as no, this is a place that we can be free and I can be free and I can, you know, express myself fully and I'm not supposed to, you know, control anybody or drive anybody to do what I want them to do. But I just think it, you can't disentangle that from their race and the period that they grew up in. And, and you know, I don't want to pick on Fog Allen because there's a lot, I'm sure he contributed to the game, but I think it's worth mentioning. No, it's a be- that's, it's a really wise and beautiful insight it was the yeah it's the it's the kernel of of the idea that this is a language of freedom or this is a language of control uh i think it, it runs straight up to today to analytics um <laughs> to me i i think most of the time analytics is the language of control um not of freedom but 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 exactly you know you know and you McClendon came from where he came from, so he saw this as a space where he was free. Others could be free. I'm not going to impose. I'm going to let creativity flow, ownership flow. There's an egalitarianness to this space that he saw, whereas Alan saw it completely the opposite. Right. Which, And it doesn't surprise me. That's why the game has been so popular in China. Uh even bef- even when they were living under Mao in total isolation, the only Western thing he kept was basketball. Why? What was the joy of that? Maybe Mao himself didn't even understand how good it felt to just be in this space with others that was uh, coachless, free, spontaneous, um, fluid, positionless, which was completely the opposite of any type of authoritarian uh, uh, existence.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.